really love that song. Uh, it's such a cool idea, like just thinking through the imagery of that, of like there's a body there and then all of a sudden like the heart starts beating and he starts breathing again. You're just like, wait, like there has to be something. Like they're gotta have like the shock or like CPR or something. They're like, no, he just, he was done being dead. So he, it all started working again. So it's like when you, when you think that through, you're just like, whoa, that's, that's the God that we serve, right? So good morning, it's Easter morning, he's risen. Good job, you guys read the screen, love that. <laughs> so every year we come and we celebrate Easter, right? And, and we're excited and, and really it's hard to wait to Easter to celebrate Easter. Like we go through this season, you know, some people celebrate uh, Lent, right? And, and it's this time when we sort of think about, you know, our own suffering, our own death and reflection on the suffering in Christ that dead that Christ did and, and how that kind of works. And, and we sort of are waiting for the fact that Easter Sunday is coming. And, and Palm Sunday comes, and Steve talked about this last week. It's Palm Sunday, and we're like, we're just going to gloss over this and skip right to Easter. Like, we don't want to deal with Palm Sunday as Palm Sunday. We're just like, but the good stuff is next week, right? And then we get to Good Friday, and we're like, this is depressing, and I don't want this to be depressing. I want to just like fast forward a couple more days and get to Easter. It's so exciting. So it's as, as fun as it is, you know, to celebrate Easter, like, it's here. We get to celebrate now. Like, Jesus is alive, and we get to celebrate that. And what we realize is that Jesus actually rising from the dead changes everything. Like that's the thing that changes everything. It changes the whole universe. It changes my relationship with God. It changes the way that I think about life. It changes the way that I think about the Bible. Everything in my life has changed as a result of the resurrection. And we're going to kind of work through that this morning. The funny thing is, is the disciples had no idea. Like, they did not get that at all right away, right? So it's Easter Sunday morning, like, it's 1130, and if we go back to that morning, the disciples were still super confused about what was going on. Um, we look back and we see the risen Savior, and we're like, also, we know how that impacts the rest of the things that we think about. So we're like, yeah, Easter Sunday, and what that means is when the angel sang peace on earth at Christmas, like, we know that that that's different because of a risen Savior, right? When we think about, you know, Jesus being baptized and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, we know that that's different because of the resurrection. And so we see everything through the lens of the resurrection, but those initial disciples were still like, I have no idea what's going on. They were, they were not prepared to deal with it. So in order to kind of fully enter into what the resurrection means, I want to rewind it a little bit because you have to have that, that little bit of anticipation, Right, so you can't, you know, if you're if you're watching uh, Avengers: Infinity War or Endgame, right? Like, there's that moment when all the portals open up, and when that happens, like that's 20 plus movies worth of like fan service, right? And you're just like, yes. But if you just turn that on, you're like, I I don't know. I mean, cool. There's an army there. Like, it doesn't have any meaning. Or you're for you know, if you're a little bit older, you're watching TV and it's it's. Uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, right? And it comes on there, and you're watching it, and your kid walks in the room, and you're like, hey, what's going on? And you're like, uh, give me a minute. Like, Spock is dying. And they're like, who's Spock? And you're like, really? <laughs> right? Like, you're struggling through that because you're like, I'm two movies and three series and like 50 years into committing to this character. Like, it's got an emotional toll for me, and you don't understand it because you literally just walked in. And so what we're going to do is we're going to think through sort of where the disciples were that first Easter Sunday morning and where they were. So the tomb is empty. Like that's not a thing that's debatable. That's a thing that actually happened. The tomb is empty. 
the, the women have come, they showed up, the tomb, there was nobody in the tomb, they talked to an angel, right? The angel was like, Jesus is alive. And they're like, okay, since he's not in the tomb, I, I guess we're going with that, right? They go back, they tell the disciples, the disciples weren't really convinced, so Peter goes, Peter and John look, they don't see anybody, they, may, they saw an angel as well, they're a little bit confused. Then Mary Magdalene talks to Jesus, like she actually had a conversation with him. And so there's all of that that's gone on, and then also we've got in, in some of the other gospel accounts where the guards were nervous about their jobs. And so they went and they took a bribe to tell everybody that, that you know, the body had been stolen. So that's a rumor that's also kind of flying around at this time. And even though there's no social media, there's no Twitter, right? Like it's a small town. Jerusalem is still not a huge town. So everybody's talking about what has happened. The death, the claims of resurrection, the claims of the body stolen. And so we're going to pick that up in Luke 24, uh, verse 13. That's kind of the thing that has happened. So everybody's aware of all this stuff. Everybody's heard this. Everybody's forming their opinions kind of on what's going on. So we're going to pick it up in verse 13. That very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So we don't know the identity of these two. We find out later one of them's name was Cleopas, so it wasn't necessarily disciples that we knew that were named. Um, and so these, these disciples, they're like not really sure of what's going on. They're pretty confused. And so they've got to take this trip. We don't even know, like it could have been husband and wife. It could have been just people that were both disciples of Jesus that were going the same direction. We have no idea what the relationship was, right? It's, it's two disciples. So they're going, they're going to this village, probably visit family, right? And they're taking a walk. And so they're just having this conversation because they don't know. Like they don't have any confidence in anything that's happened. They're just like, I mean, we heard this story. We heard this woman. We heard these other guys, but we don't have any idea what's really kind of going on. So they're confused. And, and the, the reason they're confused, I think, is they had this expectation sort of built up that Jesus was the Messiah, but that the Messiah was going to come and be a political conqueror. Like that's the idea that, that they had sort of struggled with. And Jesus had talked about this a lot, but when you've got an idea in your brain and you're really settled on this, when people tell you you're wrong, it's hard to kind of shift that, right? So they've had this idea their whole lives that the Messiah is going to be this political savior. And so when Jesus comes and he says he's going to die, they're like, yeah, maybe eventually, right? And then Jesus actually dies on the cross and they're like, I have no idea what's going on. We'll, we'll continue in verse 15. So while they were talking, they're talking about what had happened, right? Like while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation and that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know these things that have happened in these days? And he said to him, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned and to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning when they said they did not find his body. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they did not see him. And so they're walking on this road, they're having this conversation about how chaotic life is and how 
this guy that they were following isn't what they expected. And, and it's the talk of the whole town. It's literally the only thing that's trending. It's the only thing that anyone's talking about. And some guy's like, oh, what, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what? <laughs> Do you not understand? Like, this is a life-changing event for a lot of people, and it's the main thing that's happened here in the last three days, and you have no idea? Fine, we'll explain it to you. Like, I'm going to give you the whole background. We'll have this conversation. And so what you realize is they're not just talking about the last three days. Like, this is a summary of sort of everything that Jesus has done. And so for people that were disciples, like they weren't the 12 disciples, but they had been following Jesus for more than just a couple of hours, right? Like they were followers of Jesus at some level. So they knew some of the stuff that had happened, right? So they're like, okay, this was a guy that even right before he died, he predicted that Peter would deny him. And then Peter did. How did he know that was going to happen? Like, that, that's a God thing, right? Like, that has to be a God thing if you know that somebody's going to lie about you. Like, that's a thing. And, and then also, they heard the stories. They knew Mary Magdalene. They're like, yeah, so she used to have these demons, but then she doesn't anymore because of him. So we were pretty sure that she would recognize him if she saw him, and she said she did. But then, like, people don't just rise from the dead, do they? But of course, we heard the stories about the fact that he raised like Lazarus, like we knew Lazarus, he's a good guy, he was dead, now he's not dead, that's kind of confusing for us. There was also that other time when he raised that other guy, and that other time when he raised that other guy, like there's all these stories, they understand the power of Jesus. They're like, he did a bunch of mighty things, so the fact that he's dead doesn't really click all the way. But they know these stories, and so it's, it's hard, it's confusing, they're, they're not sure. I don't want to fault these two. I think it's easy to be like, well, you didn't understand, like you just didn't, you know, you didn't get it. But the fact is, is that's a part of the process, right? When we don't know what's happening, when we're not really sure what God is doing, confusion is the part of the process. We're often confused when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. We're often confused when we're kind of struggling through what's going on in our lives. And when something catastrophic happens or something big happens, confusion, because we don't understand, it's kind of the first step in wrestling with it and figuring out what's actually going on. And the thing that maybe makes it a little bit worse is that they have all the parts of, pieces of information. Like, there's actually all the information that they need to figure this thing out is right in front of them. They say most of it, right? Like, when you look through, they're like, Jesus was a prophet, he was mighty indeed. Okay, he did a lot of things. He was mighty indeed before God. He did it in front of people, right? Like, he actually did these things in front of people, and he had this relationship with God. He was condemned to death and crucified. Like, they knew that. They understand that he was condemned to death. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had this idea that maybe he was the Messiah. And then he was dead for three days, but then he's not in the tomb, like, that's a big piece of information. We watched him die. We're pretty sure he was dead, but he's not there anymore. We've actually heard a rumor that he's alive. Every single piece of information that they needed to sort of put all this together is right there in front of them. They don't get it. And I think a lot of times, even if we have all of the data points, even if all the information is there, sometimes we're still confused because we don't understand what God's plan is, so we just have all the puzzle pieces but we don't know how they fit together. And so sometimes we hear and we're not sure, we're, we're just confused, but that's a part of the process. 
That's a part of the process of moving from a person that doesn't actually know or understand to actually being a person that's, that understands who Jesus is and, and is willing to follow it. And so they're trying to sort out these answers. They're trying to figure this out. They're talking to each other. They know each other. They know that the other person is trying to follow or was trying to follow Jesus. They're not sure where they're at now. And so they're just working through the process of being frustrated and confused kind of together. And the one thing that would have actually convinced them seeing Jesus alive, they get, but they don't realize they're getting. Verse 16 says that he prevented them from seeing. So the one piece of the puzzle that would have sort of solved it all, Jesus is holding back. So it seems like it's a supernatural thing where they could have recognized Jesus, but he's intentionally letting them not. And then that kind of makes us like, wait, Jesus is not revealing who he is? Like, what is that about? And, and I think the reason for that is that he wants to lead them through the process. They're confused, they're frustrated, they have all the pieces, and he's like, if I just come in and show, hey, I'm alive, then that, that short circuits all of the figuring it out, all of the work, all the mental th stuff. And so he's like, I'm gonna explain this to you without you actually knowing who I am and so that you can figure it out for yourselves. Because when we figure it out for ourselves, we actually know it, right? Like, that's a part of learning, that's a part of, of understanding something is being confused, struggling with it, trying to put it together, and then you get the answer, and you're like, oh, now I get it. I've wrestled with it, I understand why it's, why it's wrong, why I was wrong, and then I understand what the, what the right answer is. So that's what Jesus does, verse 25, he says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is like, all right, we're going to walk through this very slowly. We're going to figure out what the answer actually is. And so I don't know what Jesus actually said. Like, we don't have any record. It just says Moses and all the prophets. So I'm going to grab a couple pieces of what this is so that we can see, maybe understand what Jesus is talking about. So Moses and all the prophets, first of all, that probably just means the whole Testament. Like that's just sort of like a, a phrase for referring to, you know, everything. So part of this is going to come from the series that we did last fall. We did the series, The Epic Plan. If you're confused about some of this stuff or you're, you don't get the details, you can go back. It's all on YouTube. You can watch the whole like 14 weeks. It's helpful. Um, so Jesus goes back and he's like, this whole half of the Bible for us, for them, it was the whole Bible. This points to this event. And so let me explain to you how this works together. And it's pretty likely that he started with Genesis, right? Genesis is the first book that Moses wrote. And, and it starts off very early. If, if we look in Genesis 3, this is right after the fall. So God creates Adam and Eve. They live in the garden. Everything's perfect. And then Eve is tempted by the serpent. And so she sins. She takes the fruit. She eats it. It's sin, it's wrong. Adam takes the sin, he eats it, that's also sin. And so now they're in a state where they're sinning, they're rebelling against God, they have disobeyed. And God comes and he's like, what are you guys doing? Like you, you had this opportunity to live in perfection and you messed it up. And so then he talks to them and he tells them sort of some things that are gonna change in their lives. And he comes to the serpent and this is one of the things he says, Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity, that's like hatred, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, when you read that in the thing, you're like, I don't really get what that says, but this is what's called like the first idea of the fact that there's gonna be a savior. The world is broken as a result of sin and God comes and says, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna crush the serpent. I'm gonna destroy the serpent. 
And so he says, he, you'll, he will bruise your head, like he's going to destroy you, but you're going to get some little piece of, of hitting him. And so Jesus starts probably here, and he says, so what does it mean that, that Satan will bruise his heel? It means that the Messiah is going to suffer. He's going to have some pain. It's going to be hard for the Messiah when he goes through and, and destroys Satan. It's not going to just be easy. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, that's him being bruised in the heel. It, it was painful for Jesus. He got damaged, right? But then what happened? His dying on the cross frees us from the power of Satan. It frees us from the power of sin. We walk away from, from the fall and we say, we can have the relationship with God like they had in the garden. It's a perfect relationship as a result of Christ dying. And so Christ totally destroyed the serpent by dying on the cross. And so that's probably the point where Jesus starts and he's like, okay, so what does this mean to you? And they're like, I'm not sure, right? And so Jesus explains, you know what? The Messiah conquered sin and Satan but it was going to hurt. It was going to be painful. It was going to be hard. Another thing that Jesus probably worked through with these, these two people on the road was, was the promise that he, God made to Abraham, right? In Genesis 22, uh, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you. Mind you, Abraham is the father of the entire Israel nation. Like, they all look to Abraham. He's the one that we all respect. He's the one that we all trace our lineage back to. He's the one that ha had the first real relationship with God that we understand, and so God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Jesus, when he comes to, to these two people on the road, he's saying, what does that blessing mean that all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Because it doesn't look like that's happening. And what we realize now is that Jesus' death on the cross was the sacrifice that covered the whole world. Right? Like, so we have a relationship with God. We live in Sterling Heights. We're not Jewish. I mean, there, there might be a couple people Jewish here. But like, by and large, we're mostly, mostly from other ethnic extractions. We don't follow the sacrificial systems. We're not obedient to that whole thing. And yet, we have a relationship with God. Why? It's because Jesus' death on the cross covers our sins. Right? And so that suffering is the thing that reconciles us to God. And so when we sit here, that's a part of the fulfillment of all the nations of the earth being blessed. We sit here, we have a relationship with God. That's a blessing that came from Christ dying on the cross. That came from Abraham's obedience. That's kind of how that trickled down to us, right? And so Jesus, as he's walking on the road, he says, listen, the Messiah died in order that the rest of the world could be blessed. That it's not just Israel that has the sacrificial system, but suddenly there's a sacrifice that covers everyone. Everyone can, can participate in that relationship with God that Israel had. Another chapter that Jesus probably talked to, and this is in the prophets, right? Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, it says this. Now this is Isaiah the prophet talking about the Messiah coming. This is the promise that, that was made by God to the people of Israel about the Messiah coming. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And so this is one that I'm pretty sure Jesus talked to them about, right? Like there's this point where the Messiah had to suffer, that the relationship that we all want with God is the result of the Messiah's death and the Messiah's suffering. And so the prophets predicted that he would come and he would be a king, but before he would come and be a king, he would be a suffering servant. And so Jesus is saying, what, what does Isaiah say when, what mean when he says that? What does it mean when it says he was pierced for our transgressions? And what we realize is that when the prophet Isaiah says that, that's the point where we, we recognize that that's how we have our peace with God. He was pierced for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. We, our sin was, was on him on the cross. And so what they didn't understand and what we now start to understand is that Christ's death on the cross is the thing that reconciles us to God. And so we stand before God as, as a part of his people, as a part of his family because of what happened on the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection paves the way for us to be a part of the family of God. And so when we come to him in faith and say, Lord, I believe that you're the one that can take away my sin, that I, I don't want this separation from you anymore. That's the starting point of, of that relationship. But it has to start with the cross. It has to start with the death and the suffering of the Messiah. And so we're no longer in the Old Testament. We're no longer under that. It is shifted because of the death, burial, and, and the resurrection. When we realize that Jesus rose from the dead, it actually changes everything. So Jesus explains all of these things to these two people on the road. And, and it's like a two-hour walk, right? Like, so it's seven miles. You're like, if you, if you walk at a pretty good clip, you can do that in two hours. If you're a little bit slower, it's closer to three. Kind of depends on your pace. But it's a seven-mile journey, right? So we know that it's a, it's a long walk. So I'm not going to cover everything. We don't have two hours. But you guys want to hang out for another two hours. I don't know what your lunch plans are. Verse 28. So they've been talking for two hours. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus explains this whole thing to them. And they sit down and they're having dinner. And it's in that sort of familiar confines of having a meal with someone that you've known for a long time that they're like, Wait, you're actually Jesus. I, I knew I recognized something. I knew there was something when you were talking. I recognized. I didn't realize it. You're definitely Jesus. You're definitely alive. And Jesus is like, hey, good job. And then he's gone, right? Like it's just... <laughs> and then immediately they get up and they sprint back the seven miles. So you just walked seven miles. And they're like, this is awesome. And they turn around and they finish their half marathon. Good job, guys. And so they realized Jesus was ro rose from the dead, right? So all of a sudden, whatever business they had in Emmaus, not important anymore. The fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, much more important. We need to go tell everybody. We need to communicate this. We need to make sure that everybody realizes it. And so what we realize is that for them, it was that life change, right? Like in that moment, they're like, this guy that we've been following, he's really the Messiah. We were suspicious. We doubted. Now we're positive. He defeated death. He's definitely the one. Right? And so that changed their immediate plans. It changed the rest of their lives. 
And so for us, we look at that and we're like, it doesn't necessarily change my immediate plans. Does the resurrection really change the rest of my life? Because we, we can say, okay, yeah, it's awesome that Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead, he defeated death, but it still feels like we have to deal with a lot of the same garbage. It doesn't always feel like it's really the fact that the risen Savior, like, how does that make my life better? Why do I care? And, and so we, we kind of wrestle with that. And so what I want to do now is, now that we sort of see these people saw Jesus and it changed their lives, how does it impact us? Because there's a lot of things in our lives that we just struggle with and we're like, I don't know if the resurrection actually impacts us. Or we think, you know, in our brains, yeah, it probably changes this, but we don't allow that, to, that truth to impact our hearts. One of the things that, that we really struggle with is guilt. So we know that we've done some stuff that's wrong. We know that we've kind of messed some things up. But does this, the resurrection of Jesus actually change our guilt? Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with the legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And so what we realize when we read that, that from Paul is that Christ's death removes our guilt. Like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ removes my guilt. I'm guilty before God. I have this sin, but he paid the penalty. He covered that for me. And if I come to him in faith and accept that, then I can have a relationship because he's removed my guilt. What happens on the cross is that Jesus dies and his death means that the sin stays on the cross. It doesn't leave. It stays right there. And he rises from the dead and he says, you can have my righteousness. I'm going to give that to you. And so our sin, if we come to him in faith and we say, I don't want my sin anymore, I can't live with this, I can't deal with this, he takes the sin, he nailed it to the cross, and he gives us his righteousness. And so we don't have any guilt anymore. Like even when we screw up now, that sin is on the cross. And so we stand before God, not as guilty sinners, we stand as, before him as people that have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, and then sacrificed himself. So we stand before God with zero guilt. We don't have to feel guilty. So we do something wrong. We're like, ah, I did this thing wrong. I feel this guilt. And what does God say? Confess, repent, it's gone. It's done. Jesus paid for it. You don't have to deal with it anymore. Right? And sometimes I feel guilt without having done anything wrong. I'm just like, ah, I feel kind of guilty. I know I, it's not actually wrong, but I just feel that. And he's like, no, it's gone. Any sin that you've actually done that deserves guilt is nailed to the cross. Anything else, you don't have to feel guilty about. So it's really just about aligning my emotional life with the reality of what Christ has done. Now, granted, that's a hard thing. It's hard sometimes to live out the truth that we know, right? So we know that our guilt is gone, but we have to live that out and say, you know what? Every time that I feel guilty, it's either repent of my sin or just focus on the fact that, that Christ removed it. Those are the only correct responses for a Christian, right? Like if I've come to him in faith and let him take that away, it's gone. The resurrection for us actually changes the fact of our guilt. Like the resurrection changed the fact that we were guilty before God, we're not anymore. Another thing that, that we sometimes struggle with is control or worry. Like these disciples, they were confused, they were frustrated, they didn't know. And so they're worried, they're walking on the road, they're like, did I just waste the last three years of my life? Like what am I doing? What's, what am I, what's my life about now if this guy's not really the Messiah? 
And so Jesus shows up and he shows that he's alive and that solved their worry in the moment. But sometimes we still struggle with that, right? How does Jesus' resurrection fix my anxiety, my worry, the things that I, that I think through that I can't like let go? Romans 8 says this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So our fear is usually based in sin, whether it's our sin, like we're afraid of consequences for our sin, or we're afraid of somebody else sinning against us. Like that's, that's a, a big piece of our fear is, is based on, on sin in the world. And so when Jesus dies, he removes that sin. And, and so we're just sort of left with people that still sin, but we don't know like sort of how that's solved, how that's resolved. When we come to faith in Christ, what we realize, though, is that the God that's powerful enough to, to beat sin is power enough to control the universe. And so when we come to him, we say, okay, I, I'm afraid of my own consequences of sin, but that was taken on the cross. So ultimately, anything that I go through is God's allowing that in my life because he's that powerful. And the sin of somebody else that comes and impacts me, ultimately, that's been resolved too. Not, not that I don't still deal with the consequences, but God is in control and he's allowing or not allowing those things to happen. So as I go through, through things that I can't control, that I struggle with, that are difficult for me, I can recognize the fact that the God who loves me, that gave himself for me, is allowing that or preventing that from being worse, and I can just rest in him. I'm his son. He loves me. I don't have to worry. He's in control. Now, granted, there's some levels of, of worry and anxiety that, that need more than just sort of refocusing on what, who God is, right? Like, you start off with that, and if that doesn't work, maybe you move to that plus a therapist, and if that doesn't work, maybe that plus a therapist plus medication. I'm not saying that everything can be resolved with just like, well, if you just pray and recognize God's in control, it'll solve all your anxiety issues. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that those are the emotional results of, of something rather than the reality beneath, right? Like, we struggle often with, again, making our emotions connect back with the reality. So the reality is that God is in control, and there's nothing that I really need to worry about. Whether or not I do is a different question, but I don't have to because God's actually in control. Another thing that sometimes we struggle with is, is shame or worthlessness, right? Like we, we feel like we don't have any value in and of ourselves. The second Corinthians says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so what happens is when Christ rises from the dead, he creates us as new creation. We're the children of God. And so our value isn't inherent in, in what we've done. It's because the God of the universe, the infinite God of the universe, created us and loves us for who we are. That's where our worth comes from. And again, sometimes it's the feeling versus the reality, but the reality underneath it is that if you've come to him in faith, you're a child of God. You're a beloved child that he values simply because you are. And so you don't have to feel shame. You're a child of the king of the universe. You don't have to feel worthless. He loves you infinitely because of who you are, just because you're his. And so when we realize that, what we see is that there's, there's no room for that feeling of shame or worthlessness. That's something separate. That's a feeling that's from Satan. That's not actually what God has called us to. My worth is attached to the fact that the unchanging and infinite God of the universe loves me for who I am. That's the reality. 
Maybe we struggle with identity or, or feeling like we belong. Like, what am I even doing here? I guarantee you those guys on the road were struggling with, like, what, what's going on here? I don't, I don't know. They didn't understand. First Peter says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So as a result of the resurrection, a part of my identity is that I'm a child of God. I'm a part of the people of God. If I don't feel like I've got a tribe or a place to live or a place that I connect, I can know that before God, I'm his beloved child. God accepts me. He loves me for who I am. And so even, even when I struggle with that feeling of, of not belonging or I'm not sure who I am, I can go back to the fact that I am the person that God created me to be. This is who I am, and, and he loves me for that. I'm a part of his people. I'm a part of his priesthood, his holy nation. That's what Peter says. And so we stand, and, and those feelings, again, those are feelings they're not reflective of the reality because the reality is the resurrection has brought me into the part of this family. I belong in the family of God. That's the place where I can set my identity as a beloved child of his. And so when we talk about the resurrection changing anything, what happens is that the resurrection impacts our deepest needs, our deepest feelings, the things that we struggle with, God changes as a result of the resurrection. We're new creations in him. We've got new identity. We don't have any guilt. We don't have any shame because of the resurrection, because Christ rose and washed all of those things away. And so often our progress as we live the Christian life is this. We start off with confusion, right? We struggle to understand how does, how does the resurrection impact this? What does the resurrection mean for me here? I'm confused and I struggle. And then as we kind of work through it, we start to understand some of the answers. We start to realize, oh, God does say something about this. God does actually have some things that impact my, my thoughts about this. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And we see the truth. We see that the resurrection has changed, not just my life, but the whole world. And it's transformed in a way that, that honors and glorifies God. And we realize that Jesus actually rose from the dead and it changes everything. Everything that we are, everything that we've done, everything that we live our lives for, all of it has changed as a result of the resurrection. I haven't started with questions this whole time, right? Like I've kind of been building to this. The question that we have to face is, has the reality that Jesus rose from the dead changed your life? And the starting point for that is having a relationship with him, coming to him and confessing your sin and asking for a relationship with the God of the universe. That's the starting point of it. But like I said, the resurrection changes literally everything. So even if you've done that, there's more steps. There's more things that the resurrection can change for, for God's glory and for your good as you live for him. And so now it comes like the rubber meets the road. How can the resurrection change my life this week? What's a thing that I've been wrestling with, that I've been struggling with, that I'm not sure about, that, that I feel like I'm disconnected with God? How does the resurrection change that? So this is a big open-ended question. I recognize that I'm not giving you guys like a, le a little easy like application, like, oh, this is the one thing that I do that's gonna, like, how does the resurrection change the way that you interact with people? How does the resurrection change the sin that you're struggling with? How does the resurrection change the attitude that you know is wrong? Like, what is it in your life that the resurrection needs to change and how does that start? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that the tomb is empty, that we have new life and new hope and a new reality as a result of the resurrection. And we know that Jesus is alive because like the song says, he lives within us. He lives in my heart. I don't have to rely on, on the external evidence or the witnesses that are out there. I know that Jesus is real and he's alive because I talk to him and I have a conversation with him and he's changed my life. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can celebrate this morning, that we can see a risen Savior that's ruling and reigning and changing the world, and that one day he will come back and he will save us from all the leftover sin that's still hanging around, Lord, and that we will live in eternity uh, in glory with, with you. We thank you that the resurrection is that promise that that will come true. And we thank you for the fact that it has already changed our lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen.